0: Out one evening by a river of discontent, on strain to old Tom Payne, running down the road. He, went. he said, I can't stop right now, child. King George is after me. He'd have a rope around my throat and hang me on the Liberty Tree. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American writers, 100 pages at a time, using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be starting a new series on the writings of Thomas Paine. It'll be a new direction for this podcast because it'll be the first time I'll be taking a serious look at someone who wrote exclusively nonfiction. Um, We did look at a little bit of nonfiction writing with Frank Norris earlier, but this is the first time I have a series fully devoted to political and... um, political writing and philosophy and and things like that won't be the last time but it's the first so this series will be in eight parts the first four will explore Thomas Paine's American revolutionary writings uh, especially common sense which we'll do in this episode and then the crisis we'll also look at a few other essays including a few that came after the American Revolution but mostly the first half of this series will be on the American Revolution writings and then the last four Episodes in the series will be on his French Revolutionary writings. The works that, and we'll look at two works there The Rights of Man and The Age of Reason. The Age of Reason is not particularly about the French Revolution like The Rights of Man was, but it was written while he was in France and during the French Revolution. So I'm really excited to begin this series on Thomas Paine. I've always considered him one of the most important and interesting of the founders. He's also the one whose ideas are the most relevant to us today. When you read some like george washington or marshall or not that's not true with hamilton but adams you know some of those people they just seem like yeah it's interesting it's historically relevant but what do i get out of that right but i think thomas Paine by really talking about democracy in very interesting ways and in ways that are still relevant to us and we can still ask questions about our society and our political system um through his writings, which I don't think you can get the same kind of traction out of other founders. Um, you know, I think he's in the school with like Hamilton and Franklin that really go beyond time. He sounds to us actually very modern and contemporary. One thing I noticed reading through these pamphlets again is how much pain relished the role of what we would now call a troll If If he he had the internet, he would have been the preeminent internet troll. Much of the crisis letters are simply trolling Britain. Uh, Trolling the English or trolling the king or the English people or the generals in in America, the English generals fighting to bring America back into the empire. Anyways, Payne was born in 1937 in Norfolk, England, into a Quaker family. In 1750, he began studying his craft as an apprentice. As the story is often told, he worked as as a corset maker or what was called a stay maker. I have heard this claim disputed, but I'm gonna assume that the classical account of his, up, his upbringing and his training and his craft is correct, that he was a corset maker. Uh, the claim I've heard is that this was just anti-pain propaganda by the English and that by being a stay maker, he was actually doing something with shipbuilding. Um, but I only heard that once. I'm not sure if it's true. Anyways, during the seven years war, Payne serves on board a privateer. So he gets a little bit of maritime experience. He returns to London bef- bef- and be, uh, before accepting his profession as a craftsman. He also pursued his education, uh, not formally. He didn't go to university or anything, but he did attend lectures in science and technology. Um, so he's growing up at a time when you start to have the beginning of a technological revolution, in britain the early industrial revolution and he's being part of that culture he's going to those talks he married in 1759 to an orphan woman who worked as a maid and that marriage lasted only a year due to his wife's death in 1762 he enters the british government serving as an excise officer for about a pound a week this did not last long and he returned to corset making in 1767 he gained a teaching position in kensington He gets involved in politics at this time through his cohabitation with Samuel Olive, 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 I think, two L's, O-L-L-I-V-E, who is a tobacconist and a politically active Whig at the local level. And Payne eventually marries his daughter in 1771. This is after Olive died. Payne's own entrance into politics begins with his writing on a pamphlet on the conditions of excise officers, where he was asking essentially for a pay increase for these excise officers. However, his petitions are unsuccessful. He learned how indifferent Parliament could become to the needs of its subjects and how useless petitioning could be, which is why, I think in one way, this is one reason why Common Sense addressed itself directly to the people of America, not just trying to throw in a punch into the political back and forth. In 1774, his life took an unfortunate turn, the tobacconist shop he worked uh, with the Olivers family failed and he was fired as an excise officer for being absent without leave he separates from his wife that same year however it's a turning point pain means meet Payne meets Ben Franklin in this year and Franklin encourages Payne to move to America essentially saying you know America needs guys like you he does this uh, he goes to America he's carrying a letter with him from Franklin in his pocket which he's supposed to present to one of Franklin's relatives and this will be getting him into Philadelphia life. And he does that. Within a year of arriving in America, fighting breaks out between Britain and America in Massachusetts. April 19th, 1775, of course, the battles of Lexington and Concord. Payne immediately begins writing for publications in Pennsylvania. He gets to know prominent Americans, including Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Pryor. And in January 1776, Payne publishes his pamphlet Common Sense. As everyone who took a freshman course in American history or even just learned about the American Revolution in middle school knows, common sense is instrumental in turning Americans away from ideas of reconciliation and towards you know, independence and revolution. In this pamphlet, Payne argues along two major tracks. First is that America has a moral right to demand its independence. The second argument was that America is a mature society that had the economic, political, and social foundation necessary for self-rule. Common Sense was a best-selling pamphlet, read to or listened to by many Americans. 150,000 were said to have been sold, and that's Payne's numbers. But each one copy sold was probably read several times or even read to crowds of folks. In the same year, he wrote a series of letters responding to attacks on Common Sense and the idea of independence, known collectively as the Forrester Letters, I'll not say much about the Forrester letters, although they're included in the volume I have. Uh, instead, I'll just focus on common sense because the Forrester letters overlap a lot um, and they don't really add that much. I think it's best if we just focus on, on common sense. We'll have a lot of time to explore those other letters and pamphlets in the coming episodes. Okay, common sense is broken up into four, I guess you'd call them chapters, four parts, uh, these chapters move from the general to the specific. Uh, and This is sort of common in Enlightenment writing on political theory, that you start with kind of the abstract and the general, sometimes starting with you know the origin of societies, and then you move to specific applications of those ideas. So the first part is on government in general, its origin and its role. The second is on the form of government, particularly monarchy, and why this form of government is flawed. The third chapter is on the conflict between the British monarchy and the American people. In a sense, it's his justification of rebellion and independence. And the final section is the most practical, arguing that America is capable of independence and victory in the struggle with England. In short, how his argument goes is, first, people, societies form government. right? And then the second chapter argues that because societies form government, monarchy is a very failed and, uh, and formal government and should not be sustained in theory. The third chapter is that the British monarchy has specifically wronged the American people. So even if the first part wasn't true, that monarchy has failed, this monarchy, as it applies to England or to America, is a failure. I'd say for England, too, but that comes up more in the rights of man. And then the final section, he argues that, you know, he, he kind of. Preempts the claim that well, America is too young, not ready. And he says, no, that's not true. America, you know, could be independent and is fully capable of independent. But essentially, America is an adult nation. The first and second parts are probably the most enduring and important for contemporary readers because they're based on universal principles. Now he starts with the old debate that shaped much of Enlightenment era political philosophy, and that is why does government emerge? Um, and of course the most common theory at the time about why government emerges was contract theory. There's many different variants of contract theory, um, but it all comes down to the idea that that sometime in the past, primordial past, government came to be because the people made a contract with government. Now, Payne already has a problem with this, and I don't know if it's in common sense. I think it's actually in the Rights of Man, where he talks about the absurdity of of people making a contract with something that doesn't exist cuz social contract theory is supposed to explain where government comes from right it's supposed to say you know what's government's origins well it's a social contract well paine says well then what are the people the society that makes this deal with government what are they negotiating with they're negotiating with something that doesn't yet exist so he comes to the conclusion that government must come from society you know it must emerge out of society now, but generally, the social contract theory, you know, it has different variants. There's the Hobbesian model, which focuses on government's need to protect, you know, the people from their own evils and from violence. And because government gives you lot right, the right to life, it gives you security, you don't have any claims on government. You can't have any restraint on it at all. And then you have, of course, the Lockean form, which says government exists to protect our property and our rights and our... our rights to property not necessarily our property but our rights to property our rights to liberty and our rights to life and then of course you have rousseau which talks about social contract in a new way where people are actually making a contract with themselves right it's it's kind of through the general will that we make a contract with our society so the social contract isn't with some outside government it's it's with ourselves and i think this way pain is a little bit closer to this idea he thinks government is certainly an external thing to society, but it comes from society. Now, what he makes clear in common sense here is that bringing in government, whatever its virtues may be, constitutes a reduction in moral virtue. So government is not a good thing. So in this sense, it is external to society. He says at one point, you know, society comes out of people's best character and best desires, government out of its worst. Um, the way he says it is, Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil, in its worst state an intolerable one. For when we suffer, we are exposed to the same miseries by government, which we might be expected in the country without government. Our calamity is heightened by reflecting that, which, that we furnish the means by which we suffer. Government, like dress, is a badge of lost innocence. The palaces of the kings are built on the ruins of bowers of Paradise." And a little bit later this is really early in common sense thus necessity like gravity and power would soon form our newly arrived immigrants into society the reciprocal blessings of which would supersede and render to the obligations of law and government unnecessary while they remain perfectly just to each other but as nothing but heaven is impenetrable to vice it will unavoidably happen that in proportion as they summit the first difficulties of immigration which bound them together into a common cause they this is the society they will begin to relax in their duty and attachment to each other. And this remisses rem, reminisce, remission, reminisces, I, I'm not sure the word actually, um, will point out the necessity of establishing some form of government to supply the defect of moral virtue. Awesome. Okay, end quote. Sorry about the brain fart there. Um, okay, so basically government is going to generally cause a reduction in moral virtue of society. It it's going to have the worst of society and it'll have the best of society. And as long as it's not checked, it's going to exacerbate the worst of society. He next explores the three major types of government as he sees it, which are monarchy, aristocracy, and republic. Now, these are interesting three to point out because these are the three parts of the British constitution of the 18th century. Right, The British claim they had a unique constitution that unified and created compromise and checks and balances between the king, the nobility, or or the monarchy, the king represented by the monarchy, the aristocracy represented by lords, and the republic represented by commons, right? So this is the British idea that there's going to be a union of the three, but Paine doesn't think so. He says that these are three distinct and separate forms of government, and you really can't have a hybrid between them. So the British government, when push comes to shove, has to be one of these, right? And what it is is a monarchy, because of the powers of the king will trump the powers of the republican side and of the aristocratic side. So he goes on from the short description to general principles to pretty quick trolling England. He does this throughout the text because, of course, he's interested in attacking England and questioning his political system, and really ridiculing his political system. He wants Americans to laugh, to find ridiculous the British way of doing things, you know, it's just so they will want to form their own government. He does not waste time with long dissertations on other governments like you might find in like Montesquieu or something. Uh, he wants to get to the point. And what I like about him is that he leaves the abstract to a footnote. He does not need philosophy. He only needs to look honestly at the system he lives in, you know, because the essay is, of course, called common sense. So anyone with common sense would see that government is best if coming out of society not imposed on it from the top. Now, the second section is on monarchy and hereditary succession. The problem, of course, is how we have gone from natural equality to monarchy and aristocracy we start with a state of natural liberty um that needs to form society because we need to be cooperative you know all life essentially we're social beings we're social animals we need society to function at all right we need even you know even the simplest task of getting food right you need someone to shoot the bow and someone to chase the deer out of the woods or whatever right you need you know know, it takes more than one person to build a house you know you you need society so you're eventually going to form societies but society then constitutes a reduction of of our liberties right and government is going to of course make that worse so it's it's it makes sense that we go eventually from natural equality to monarchy and aristocracy but he doesn't think that's the only necessarily uh, necessary result of of forming societies even if you grant social contract three which pain doesn't quite do the question is why some subset of people are predestined to rule. You could say, well, it's a social contract, so we're a bond, we're obliged to 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 serve the state. We're obliged to serve monarchy. Well, that still doesn't explain why some people are chosen to be the king. Why not then have the best of you be the the king? And he actually asked this question: Why have it hereditary rule? So it goes into this long discussion of hereditary rule, and you have some of his famous quotes here. Um, I'll give you one. Um, to the evil of monarchy, we have added that of hereditary secession. And as to the first is a degradation and lessening of ourselves. So the second, claimed as a matter of right, is the insult on the imposition of posterity. For all men being originally equals, no one by birth could have set, has a right to set up his own family in perpetual preference to all others forever. And though himself might deserve some decent degree of honors of his contemporaries, yet his descendants might be far too unworthy to inherit them. One of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary rights of kings is that nature disproves it. Otherwise, she would not so frequently turn it into ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. So anyone who's read this, you know, remembers this quote, I'm sure. You know, this is the problem with hereditary rule. Now, in the case of England, he doesn't even grant that the founder was a man of moral virtue. Uh, One does not need to go farther than William the Conqueror. Uh, to come to the conclusion that hereditary succession is based not on divine right but simply on violence and who could acquire violence at one p- time and then hold on to that violence into the future all royal lines in his view are based on such usurpations of power and the odd good king here or there does not does little to comfort us that we can look forward to better monarchies in the future and thinking ahead he does talk and writes a man that louis XVI is not a bad king he tries hard he's he works hard, he had his heart in the right place, but he's still a king, and it—that it's not about the personality, it's about the figure. And he, of course, actually defended Louis XVI from, or I should say Louis Capet, as he was known at the time, from execution. So he again trolls England by saying that if England really was a hybrid government, what role is there for kings at all? So, you know, the, go back to this idea that, oh, well, England is special because it's a republic, it's a monarchy, and it's a... Uh, it's an aristocracy. So let's say, why do you say that? And they might say in response, well, you know, the, the House of Commons can trump the will of the king. And then Paine would say, OK, then you're a republic, right? And then the British go back. Well, well, no, not always, because the king has certain prerogatives that commons can't interfere with. And then he could say, well, then you're a monarchy, right? There has to be a, a king of the hill in any government, right? So hybrid government just doesn't work in his view. Someone must take orders at the end of the day. Now, the modern reader coming to Common Sense may find less of interest in the second half of the pamphlet because it deals more with issues current in 1776. His argument for independence comes really on two tracks. The first is maturation and the second is injury. Now, actually, injuries come first in the in the narrative. He starts out what the British government did to wrong America. There are many. Um, But there's really one big one for pain and you think of the Declaration of Independence with this long list of grievances most of these pain doesn't mention he really focuses on one which condenses for him all the evils and that is war. The problem with being with Britain is it draws America into wars that it has no interest in fighting Europe quote Europe is too thickly planted with kingdoms to be long at peace. And whenever a war breaks out between England and any foreign power, the trade of America goes to ruin because of her connection with Britain. The next war may not turn out like the last, and should it not, for advocates of reconciliation now will be wishing to separate then, because neutrality in that case would be a safer convoy than a man of war. Everything that is right or natural pleads for separation. The blood of the slain, the weeping voice of natural cries, time to part, even the nature by which Almighty hath placed England and America is strong and natural proof that the authority of one over the other was never designed in heaven. Right, so that's it. And it comes up a lot also in the rights of man and in the crisis is that all Britain really offer America is war at this point. Right, and that's one reason Britain wants them. The reason America can contribute to war and be a partner for Britain in the warfare is it's grown up. Is America's already grown up. It's already mature which is argument itself for independence. So really the, the the whole argument of injury comes down to war, I think, in in common sense. Although there are other mentions of other things, but that's the main one. Now, as for maturation, okay, maturation. Maturation is the second part of his argument for independence. Payne has several ways of coming at this. One is like the quote, often quoted line that it's absurd for an island to rule continent. The metaphor, though, is of growing up. The benedict to mankind of a free republic is in the Americas as well. At this point, Paine offers up an alternative government. It seems this is not a serious proposal, but merely a suggestion that if required to, the people of the Americas are capable of putting together a regular system of government without monarchy and based on sound principles of republicanism. What really matters is that Paine, and this part is that Paine thinks that Americans have a natural right to a government of their own. Quote, a government of their own is our natural right. And when a man seriously reflects on the precariousness of human affairs, he will become convinced that it is infinitely wiser and safer to form a constitution of one's own in a cool, deliberate manner while we have it in our power than to trust such an event to time and chance now this gets us to the final part of common sense his argument in this part is that the americans are capable of independence and capable of winning independence from great britain so this is in a sense the the, the least fundamental part of the argument which comes down to just america's grown up and powerful and com- has all the capacity necessary to to achieve its victory you know because he would say i think that even if everything else he set up to that point was true if americans had no point no chance to win He wouldn't want them to fight a battle that would just cause more more suffering so it's it's he's not trying to he's not making an argument like fight to the death for independence so he he does he does want to make the case that it's rational to to be involved in this movement for independence i think he has like five or six points he makes out but one is that america has no debt and england has a lot of debt so america is more capable of of sustaining a war effort for a long period of time Second, they have a capacity to build a navy as powerful as Britain's. This is kind of a corollary to the no-debt argument. He says we could easily manage the debt it takes to build a navy as powerful as Great Britain's. Next, we have the manpower to field an army and a navy. Right, that The the people exist. We have, especially the seamen. He he talks a lot about the sailors and how America has plenty of well-skilled, trained sailors who can serve in the navy. And it's not that America will be dependent on Great Britain for its defense in any way. Next, he talks about natural resources um, that the United States has, the capacity to sustain trade in the future. And he talks about homegrown, youthful talent, all these things he values and all these things he thinks America has in better supply than Great Britain. Uh, it really comes down to debt, I guess. In in all things, Britain has a deficit while America has a surplus, an untapped reservoir. Now, the current editions of Common Sense go on from here to include supplemental material. Uh, in the Library of America version we have two short essays. Uh, I think the first edition ended there and then there was like a next, second edition that had criticisms responded to by Payne. Um, and then there was the uh, the addition of a letter to the Quakers. All I'll say about this is that these letters seem to have been very show there there's a really short turnaround in pamphlets and responses. It suggested a fairly vibrant very vibrant political culture and climate active debate where You know, even before second printing of a pamphlet, you'd have a new, you know, conclusion or an addendum or or additional responses. So it's almost like a in real time debate, at least by 18th century standards. His focus on the the essay part with the response is really to answer criticisms that would say that reconciliation is still better than outright independence. Right. And he deals with that argument. Um, I think it's obvious that where he feels about that. Um, but he thinks basically delaying it whatever value delaying it would have is outweighed by the cost to long-term america you know development of america's political culture and independence the world is better off with america free now than 10 years from now he certainly thinks that it's inevitable that america will be independent now the last part of the essay is his letter to the quakers whom payne knew well he was raised by quakers um, but he seems to have a real disagreement with the Quakers over their Toryism, and it bothered him especially enough that he could pen a few direct responses to their opposition to the American Revolution. I think it comes up in the crisis letters, or there's other pamphlets written at this time, uh, around this time, where he's really talking about Quakers, um, and he was bothered that they used the argument of uh, pacifism to get in the way of supporting the American war effort, especially because, as his view is that. Long-term peace requires, for, uh, peace for America at least, requires separation from Great Britain. To stay in Britain is basically to rob Peter to pay Paul in terms of war, right? Yeah, we won't have war now, but we'll have war five years from now when Britain goes to war with France again or Spain or whoever. So that does it for common sense. Uh, Payne's first important writing, at least as an American, is the most, most historically significant in that it did, achieve its goal of moving the american public to thoughts of independence and revolution now as a follow-up to common sense we can read the forester letters uh, these are responses to a writer known simply as cato paying signs as forester mostly these are defenses of independence and defenses of common sense but he doesn't sign as common sense like he will look in the, in the crisis letters so um, he's he's kind of defending himself but not saying he's himself, I guess. I'm not sure how well these pen names were known to people at the time, but it seems he's at least trying to construct a defender of Payne's ideas. Maybe that's bad form. But at the time, I think it was acceptable. They were all written and published in the spring of 1776 in the aftermath of the publication of Common Sense. They don't add much to what's already in Common Sense and, and certainly not to what shows up later on in the crisis. Um... But like the original pamphlet, the Forrester letters always combine practical considerations with core principles and really focuses more on the practical realities rather than get too bogged down in philosophical debate. I mean, I think Payne knows that, you know, the, a, a well-trained philosopher can argue for monarchy with flawlessness, right? But that's, he doesn't really want to go there. I'll just say one more thing about him. Note his age. He's already 40 years old. And sometimes we read these writers and we're like, "Wow, how much has this writer achieved by the age of 30 or 25 or something?" When they write their first novel at 25, we're impressed. But I think it's also noteworthy that Payne has lived most of his life already. He and he did that without writing much. He's largely self-educated. He was he was a worker for much of his life, uh, working odd jobs. Uh, yeah, he was a government bureaucrat for a while, but you know he was off the radar so sometimes when you write people we can be inspired that we can do things at a young age right but I'm closer to Payne's age when he wrote Common Sense than um, I was some of these writers who started out younger and it can be you know reassuring to say that yes even if you are getting up there and you're getting a little gray you can you know be historically significant so uh, with that I will sign off for now I'll be back uh, with the crisis letters in a little bit uh, thank you so much for listening. Rate, subscribe, share um, all the things you do with these types of podcasts. Let people know about this. Um, if you're interested in the American founders and the American Revolution and Thomas Paine, I'll be doing more episodes on that. Um, another seven or so. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll see you in 100 pages. I will dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance in the oldest boots I own From the rhythm of Tom